I have a thing for blue glass and for gin. So when I was at a food festival recently and saw a booth with gorgeous blue bottles filled with gin, I made a beeline over. There I met the owner of Grey Whale Gin and found their story so interesting and the gin so unique, I asked if they'd be a guest on our podcast right then and there. I'm Courtney Drake McDonough, and I'm the host for the Real Food Traveler podcast and the publisher of the realfoodtraveler.com website. And my guests today are Marsh and Jan McTari, husband and wife, and co-owners of Grey Whale Gin, which is based in California. So welcome, both of you, and thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Courtney. So let's start with what is an overall description of your company and the products you offer? Well, our little company is called um, the Golden State Distillery, and we, we really make one product. And that, that product is that beautiful blue bottle that you just uh, alluded to, the, uh, the Gray Whale Gin. And it, it's very distinctive. As, as you said, it's in a beautiful blue pack with a white whale tail on the front of the bottle. And uh, the reason for starting this company, simply put, is to protect and preserve the world's oceans through our support of Oceana and 1% for the planet. And all of our ingredients happen to come from that beautiful migratory path of the California gray whale, which is down in Baja. And she migrates. She actually has her babies down in a beautiful little lagoon called um, the San Ignacio Bay Lagoon. And they migrate up to the Arctic uh, all the way up in Alaska and then back again every year for the rest of their lives. So all of our botanicals um, come from that migratory path. That's amazing. I, I had no idea. So explain why the blue bottle and your logo is really unique and has meaning behind it. Oh, thank you. Um, Marsh and I were on a camping trip about five or six years ago with our two daughters. Uh, we have two little girls. They were seven and eight at the time. And we were up in Big Sur. We, are not, we were on our migratory path of our own. We were on a road trip and we got one of those incredible camping sites that you have to wake up six months before at 6 a.m. to call in to try to you know, reserve this camping site. It's right on a cliff edge above an area called McQuay Falls, which is an image that is pretty synonymous with Big Sur. There's a fresh waterfall that flows right into the ocean in a lagoon there. We were in this beautiful place overlooking the ocean and watching our girls play. And we started to have the kind of conversations that you have when you're away from your job and your chores at home and you're with family and friends. And we looked at each other and we said, what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> you know, we had our own, um, quote, successful careers. But when we looked at our girls, we were thinking, what could we do? that would, you know, make them really proud. What are we doing with our time on this planet? That's going to make a positive impact um, and leave a, a legacy for, for our family. And that's really where the conversation started. Um, the ocean is really important to us. The ocean um, environmental conservation and animal conservation. Our family spends a lot of time outside. We live a couple of blocks from the ocean. We're always in the water um, and thinking about, you know, on that spot, we also wanted to, in a way, in a taste experience and a sensory experience, bring um, people back to that moment in Big Sur. So that's really where the color of the bottle comes from, is that that bay in the ocean there in Big Sur, that's what the color of the water looks like there. Oh, that's incredible that it's it's that color. I, I hope that, that was the answer, <laughs> <laughs> that, that there was a water that beautiful. And so it's a map, the label, the whale tail is also a map in a way. Yeah, definitely. So we have um, topographic kind of iconography throughout the bottle, but you'll see the Pacific coast, the West coast reflected there in, in the whale tail. And what that really represents is a couple of different things. You know, this gin is inspired by the gray whales, 12,000 mile migratory journey up and down the coast every year. But then also, you know, on the back of the bottle, one of the copy lines we say is enjoy the journey, because it's really also about the taste experience of the journey. You're able to taste your way along the Pacific coastline and pick out each one of those unique botanicals. But also enjoy the journey is really a state of mind um, about being in the present and not being so focused on the destination, but being in a present moment and enjoying your friends and family around you and, you know, being outside in incredible places like that. Well, that, that was a really good, deep question you asked them <laughs> that led to a lot. And we're going to be talking a little bit about what your backgrounds were, where you were, at, you know, in your lives at that time when you asked those big questions. 
first let's focus in on Jin. You know, why did you focus in on Jin in particular? Well, Jin, Jin is is vodka with flavor. That's really all it is. It's the original flavored vodka. And the, the one flavor that is uh, synonymous with all gins is the juniper. Uh, the, the juniper berry is a, is a beautiful little berry that um, was kind of made popular. Gosh, I mean, it's been generations and Persian empire was using it in, in multiple iterations. And so was uh, so were the Roman empire. I mean, uh, Pliny the Elder mentions it an awful lot in uh, his wonderful encyclopedia but th this little juniper flavor profile all all we do gin is like i said it's vodka with flavor so all of it, it just gave us this wonderful unique opportunity uh to taste your way along the pacific as jan just mentioned but to encapsulate the entire californian coastline and honor this beautiful gray whale because uh, like i said if we if we just have that that base spirit of uh, and and our base spirit is corn by the way and uh the the six ingredients that go into making our gin are juniper berries limes fir trees sea kelp mint and almonds and they're all mentioned on the front of the bottle exactly where each one of these um originate from so and on top of that jen and i were huge gin fans anyway uh, and when you when you really think about it you know, the number one spirit in America is vodka by far, but vodka is supposed to be tasteless and flavorless. And of course, they all taste and have some slight flavor profiles that are different. But the whole point of it is to kind of be neutral. And we just laugh about this because we go, well, gosh, gin is gin is your rosemary encrusted herbaceous bread and and vodka can be kind of thought of as wonder bread. And why are we not drinking more of this wonderful herbaceous bread? And so we knew that a tidal wave was probably going to come to the U.S. And that's that's really where it all started from back in 2016 on this camping trip. We ended up, you know, selling our house and going all chips in on this little gray whale gin thing and launched it a couple of years later in 2018, really. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I think I know the answer to this question of what's unique about what you do. Is Would you say it is the botanicals that you choose? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, we, we took a, a, a long time to get this right. You look, I, I was hosting Food Network shows at the time, and I had a lot of friends that were, um, actually, both Jan and I have a lot of friends that are chefs and tastemakers, sommeliers, and uh, we, um, we kind of went at making the flavor profile um, without any ego. We, we wanted to be a true meritocracy. Like what is the greatest tasting gin that could truly honor this gray whale? And to say it took two years and 152 recipes is no understatement. It, um, I, I basically went around the world to learn how to distill. Jan took it, the lead on the, the marketing communications, the branding. This, this bottle is what initially attracted your attention. And the reason we are talking is because you tried it and you loved the gin. So there is a, a symbiotic relationship with the way you look at things and the way you taste things and experience things. So I saw the bottle long before we had the liquid finalized, and I felt tremendous pressure to get a, a liquid that lived up to this beautiful pack. Obviously, the juniper berries um, are really uh, important and paramount. But the the base spirit, let's talk about that for a second. We, we decided on a six times... Uh, distilled corn-based distillate because it had this wonderful mouthfeel. It was slightly sweet, um, yet it was incredibly balanced, and um, it gave it a wonderful blank canvas to allow the botanicals to truly shine. And that's really what we're trying to do here. So just so your listeners understand how you make gin, you, you start out with that six times distilled base distillate or, or whatever your base distillate might be. Um, and a base distillate is where you've taken whatever, let's call it wine, or in our case, corn, we've fermented the corn. And the corn is then, uh, you know, we, we've made it essentially a corn beer, if you like, which is about 10% alcohol. We distill that. We're only getting the 10% alcohol out of there. So once it's up to 95% alcohol, now it's quote unquote called vodka. But we do one more distillation with that, um, that distillate, and we add the botanicals either in solution or above the solution. It's actually a combination of both for us. So if you think of gin as being a vodka tea, if you like, with these botanicals, and botanicals are things that are grown. Again, for your listeners, there's, there's things like the sea kelp in there that adds an earthy umaminess. The mint in there really brings out a sweetness. The almonds, oh my goodness, gives this creamy, delicate mouthfeel that that is just unlike any other gin in the world. And for us, we didn't want to make another London dry. This is, 
<laughs> we, we joke about this, but it's kind of, kind of a Californian dry because we do the same technique as a London dry, yet we're using botanicals from California that are different um, hand-zested limes as opposed to the traditional uh, dried limes and, um, and fir trees. Anyway, that's, that's really what makes our gin totally unique. I think one of the reasons it's unique as well is, pardon the pun, but Marsh and I were really fish out of water in the spirits industry. We didn't, we didn't have a background in that. We were coming at it from a place of we love gin and we really wanted to tell a story with, with our gin. And because of that, we were choosing botanicals that maybe historically weren't used in gin before, or, you know, some people who have a lot of experience in gin who were advising us, you know, said that sounds crazy. I don't think you should try that one. And we just passionately went after what would really take people to this place with us, what would tell the story. So botanicals like sea kelp and almonds, those were some of the last botanicals we added. They're not usually you know, used in gins. And that's what really what makes it so unique. Yeah. First of all, it's, it's funny that you said what you did about not going into it, not knowing things, because I, I like to say that I'm happily naive about a lot of things. And I like to keep it that way because that creates my sense of wonder about things, which, you know, I think comes through in what we do with Real Food Traveler. But The fact that you see kelp, I mean, I'd never heard of that. And talk about authentic flavors of where you travel, which is what we're all about. That's amazing. You know, you're literally tasting the flavors of the California coast in that. And Marsha, I'm sure you remember when you, you (laughs) hadn't told me what the botanicals were yet. You just said, just have a sip. And I did. And, you know, expecting wonderful juniper flavors, which I normally love and expect in gin. But I mean, my, my eyes popped open. It was it was something so different and so light and lovely and delicious. And it totally was... meshed with the bottle, you know, and that color. I mean, it was like the full ocean experience. So that's so interesting to hear that you 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 just went with what you thought would would be wonderful and not what the experts were telling you you should or shouldn't do. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think, look, gin lovers love it because it, it really is juniper forward. And yet our, our juniper is, a, is actually a different strain. Uh, it's Juniperus californicus, which um, has much more of a cedar component to your traditional London dries and, uh, and even the new American gins that use a lot of Italian and Macedonian juniper berries. So we wanted to put an element of California in this glass. So we, we actually used Thomas Keller's um, professional forager to go out and get the, uh, the juniper berries for us um, up in the Big Sur region. And, you know, with the fires that are happening, it's proving more and more challenging. So we're, uh, we're actually having a lot of fun finding um, new areas to pick these juniper berries. But they're, and yeah, just coming up with that combination, the, the goal for us was to like, like we have said many times, taste your way along the Pacific. And, and it's easy to say it, but it's really difficult to get something incredibly balanced. And, uh, and we were, you know, I mentioned we, we had a lot of chef friends and sommelier friends. So we did a lot of focus groups and taste tests, blind taste tests, where we, we'd curate a, a, a bunch of people around a table and not tell them what is what. And usually, you know, we're putting one or two of the, the bigger name gins on the table, as well as a couple of our distillations. And at the, at the beginning, of course, the big name gins were winning uh, the, the blind taste test, but then it, it started to become quite apparent that we were getting very close, that um, we would win like 90% of the time. And once that got up to 100% of the time, then we went, this is the flavor profile of Grey Whale Gin. We've, we've got it. <laughs> and that's when we stopped. We stopped R&Ding at that point. <laughs> right. And so you're, you have one product? The right. Gin, or yes. Do you have, okay. Yeah, okay. just, just the Grey Well Gin. And, and really why, because we get asked this quite often, um, and most of the stories start out by putting um, the, the uh, whiskey in a barrel and allowing it to age. Whiskey takes time to age, so yeah, we have to pay the bills, so we're going to go and make a, a, a vodka or a gin. That's typically the way it's done. For us, it was always about making gin, and uh, we wanted to create the next great American gin that that could stand up against some of these London dries and, and the Scottish gins like Hendrix that have done such great things for the gin category. And, and, and I'm, I'm really pleased with all of the other uh, gins that are coming out now because you can, you can truly taste your way around the world. And, and I think there's really a genocide happening in this country. And 
and around the world. If you ever go to Spain, when, when the world opens up again, they, they are in love with gin. Gin is their number one spirit by far. And uh, you, you have this incredible experience out there where they will give you a book, um, like a menu book that is just full of gins, maybe 100, 150 gins. And each one of them has a recommended tonic. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because three quarters of the drink is gin, uh, is tonic. So it, it makes more sense to have a tonic that's tailored specifically to your gin. It's just not all exactly the same. And, and it doesn't have to be just gin and tonic, by the way. I think there's a, there's a classic cocktail revival that's happening in this country too, that you know some of the cooler bars in New York City and uh, all, all throughout the country, actually. And, and even, in fact, all over Denver, we were really blown away where, where we, you and I met. And uh, at Top Taco, we, we went to a bunch of phenomenal cocktail bars that, you know, the, the, the sliver of um, vodka behind the bar was really surprising. And the dominant spirits were, were gin and whiskeys. Very few vodkas behind the bar, which, which was really pleasing for us. It, it just sort of indicated where the taste buds are going. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, that's pleasing for me too as a as a gin fan. Um, your website gives a great overview of the whole process of making your gin, and and I know you touched on that a little bit, but can you explain a little bit more about how that works? In particular, I noticed this beautiful kind of tea bag kind of thing of the botanicals, and I'd like to know how that is used. And moreover, I want to know what happens to it afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the gin is um, what's called London Dry. Uh, that, that's a technique, by the way. So how London Dry gins are made is um, we take a base spirit. So think 50% alcohol, a very clean base spirit, which in our case is a six times distilled corn-based distillate. We pour that into a giant copper pot. It's called a pot still. And uh, it has a steam jacket around it. And all of our dried botanicals, uh, so that would be the juniper berries, the almonds, and the sea kelp. They go directly into the pot still. We, we literally pour it through a, a pothole and pour it directly into the pot. The stuff that you're referring to in that beautiful tea bag is called a vapor extraction basket. And uh, we, we put our hand zested limes in there, the, the deneedled fir needles, and uh, the fresh mint go into this kind of a it looks like a giant tea bag, if you like it for, you, for your listeners. It's probably about two feet by two feet. We tie the very bottom of it. Uh, it's a net. And then we tie the top and we t- attach that to a little pulley system that we pull up into the helmet of the pot still. So then we heat the exterior jacket up, uh, the, the jacket of the pot still, which inevitably boils the ethanol, the, the base spirit. And if you think about what's happening now, the alcohol is robustly extracting the dried botanicals. So those juniper berries, the almonds, and the sea kelp are releasing these wonderful essential oils. And once it gets hot enough that it turns, it starts to boil, the vapor, it t- the liquid turns into a gas, uh, basic chemistry, and, and it will start to rise. And as it's rising, it, it starts to pass over that hovering va- vapor extraction basket. And you get a much more delicate extraction of the citrus, the limes, the fir trees, and the mint. And it comes across a little arm. It's called a line arm. And then at the other end, we condense it. We turn it back into a liquid. And that beautiful turn, going from a liquid to a gas back to a liquid again is called distillation. We've separated the alcohol from the residual 50% water that's left in the pot still. And what you get at the other end is a very high proof version of our gin. And we all we do with it is water it down to 43% alcohol or 86 proof. And that is it. We, we don't do anything else to it. We're not adding any flavors afterwards. We're not doing anything nefarious to it. It, it literally, it, ha- it has a, a two-day attenuation process, which is just allowing it to sit in a, a steel drum to just relax and calm down for a minute, because it's just gone through a very volatile experience, and then we put it into the bottles. And so when you pop that cap, you're, you really do get to taste those fresh botanicals um, as, uh, as, we, was, as we intended to kind of taste your oil on that Pacific. Okay, so it never gets submerged, that vapor extraction bag. It is, is purely just vapor extraction, not Yes, not it is. Yeah, just, exactly right. Just the vapor extraction on the basket at the top. Um, the, the botanicals that are in solution, obviously, they are getting a much more robust extraction. And that, that's really um, 
through trial and error for Jan and I, some, some gins are 100% vapor extracted and some gins are 100% in solution. There are some other ones that um, they macerate the, uh, macerate means if you think about like a tea bag in the, uh, the base spirit, they leave it there for a week and then they distill it. So there's, there's multiple ways to create gin, but our technique is um, a combination of um, in solution vapor extraction, and it is quote unquote, the, the London dry technique. It's the, it's the most authentic original way to make gin, if you like, but we use different botanicals. <laughs> right, right. So what do you do with the contents of the bag when you're all done? I wish I had a wonderful answer. Like we feed it to pigs and they, <laughs> they turn into, <laughs> we, we don't do anything with it. Unfortunately, it's so spent at that point, there would be very little nutritional value for, um, for anything. Uh, and you'd be very surprised that there actually isn't an awful lot of botanicals that we, we use. So a, a normal pot still for us, it's a 2000 liter coral pot still, which is a German pot still. We end up with maybe, uh, I don't know how to describe size-wise, like a, um, a, a carrier bag that you may take to a grocery store mm-hmm. full of botanicals. About that, that's all that we use in a, in a batch that would probably fill approximately 300, 400 cases of gin. Oh, wow. So surprisingly okay. little. <laughs> right. I mean, to give you a little bit more insight, the, the almonds, for example, uh, we use about a pint of almonds. Okay. All right. That's, that's really interesting. So let's go back to that day that you were watching the girls play and you started having these big, big life questions. What were you both doing professionally at that time? Um, I was a creative director uh, in marketing and advertising. I was the executive creative director of the brand content studio at Fox. And before that I had been, you know, spent 20 years working for traditional agencies, a lot of CPG work um, directly to, to consumers. I was, uh, hosting and, uh, hosting TV shows and, and acting in, in all sorts of everything from commercials to, you know, television. Uh, I had a Geico commercial that was running at the time, uh, where I'm beating up bad guys. And then my mom calls and tells me the squirrels are back in the attic. Uh, but oh yeah, <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> it, was a, it was a fun commercial. So yeah, if, if any of your listeners are going, well, who is this? Guy? That, that, that was me. Probably chances are if you're like anybody else, you, you remember the mom, you don't really remember the, the secret agent guy, but that's me. <laughs> and I, I, had a, okay. I had a show on the food network called extreme chef, which was a ton of fun. And, um, in hindsight, I think that the show would have done better had it been on like a CBS or a NBC or, or a major network because it was a it was a pretty crazy show. I um I would basically take some executive chefs and uh, oh I don't know I'd say you've got twenty minutes to cook a fish dish and your fish are in that lake get swimming and they would have to dive in go to a kayak pull up some fish and <laughs> it it was an extreme crazy fun part adventure show part um, caught on blue beautiful food show. Yeah, Marsha and I really spent, um, you know, our 20-year career each um, telling stories, me behind the camera and Marsha in front of the camera. Um, And, you know, on that cliff edge, that's what we said to each other was, that was our brief, was how can we combine our our superpowers? You know, we believe everybody has their own skill set and superpowers, and how can we combine those superpowers to create something that brings people joy and also makes a positive impact on the planet, you know, thus creating this you know, incredible purpose-driven company that our, our family could really be proud of. So when we're thinking about all elements of the gin, it, it kept coming back to telling, telling that story and transporting people to that, that place on, on that cliffside. And I think that's something that the bottle does when you look at it is, you know, whenever people are around a body of water, it's actually a phenomenon. It's called the blue mind. When people are around a body of water, um, they get calm and, and peaceful and in a blissful state. And, you know, we hope that that's what people feel when they see the bottle on the shelf, but also they're transported to that place when they, when they taste the gin. Well, definitely worked for me (laughs) (laughs) perfectly. I'm a perfect test case for you. So, so the distillery you mentioned, did that and Grey Whale Gin happen simultaneously? Yeah, well, let's take a step back. We, when we first had that conversation, uh, Jan and I got in the car and our kids are five and seven at the time. So they were 
both passed out asleep in the back of the car as we're driving back home. And um, the, the cell service kicked in and Jan was searching on GoDaddy for goldenstatedistillery.com. And surprisingly enough, it was, it was there. And so we bought it literally on that journey home. And um, three months, four months later, we sold our house to uh, launch Grey Whale Gin and didn't really know an awful lot about it. But we went all over the world to learn how to distill, met with a bunch of different distillery, actually over 50 distilleries and asked questions. So what's it like? And there's a big reason that we only have uh, or only had at the time 500 distilleries in this country. And to, to put it into perspective, by the way, Austria, small European country with five, 5.8 million people uh, as the population in Austria, they have 20,000 distilleries. We have 320 million people and we've only got 500 distilleries. So something was off. We knew that this was <laughs> apparent. Then you, it doesn't take long to figure out that, oh, well, it was prohibition back in the 30s when we banned alcohol. We put some really draconian laws in place when we repealed the prohibition era. So essentially what happens is we have something called a three-tiered system. That, that means that if you make the alcohol, you, fit, you have to sell it to a middleman called a wholesaler. And the wholesaler has to sell it to a retailer. And the retailer then has to sell it to the public. But those three tiers uh, or those three distinct steps were designed in a way that you could not know anybody in each of these tiers. So I couldn't own a distillery and Jan owns a wholesaler. We, we have to be at least not friends. Like <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's, it's a very strange system. So that on top of the fact that it costs about $2 million to start a distillery led us to the belief that, well, even if we do sell our house, we still don't have enough money to start a distillery. So we went off and um, actually found a partner who uh, produces the alcohol for us. So we, we have what's called a rotating proprietorship. So it, even though it says Golden State Distillery on the label, it actually, this distillery physically does not belong to us until we go into the, the actual distillery itself and they hand over the keys and now it's suddenly called Golden State Distillery because that's what's being produced uh, at that point. But it was something that we had to kind of pioneer and figure out and because there was no uh, handbook on this, um, but where there's a will, there's always a way. And, and I guess, you know, in the gig economy, it kind of inspired us that, you know, there's an awful lot of like WeWork, for example, the, the shared office space. It, I don't need to buy a building. I, I can just rent it for a while. Uh, and that, that just sort of made sense for us because we didn't know if Greywell was going to be a success. We, we hoped it was going to be a success. And at some point, we may well own our own distillery. But for right now, it just makes an awful lot of sense to use somebody else's facility. And also in that year of fact-finding and meeting all of those distillers and hearing you know, their, their pain points and some of the challenges that they met, it was also very evident to us um, the environmental impact of all of these different distillers building their own distilleries. So we kept kind of coming back to the table and thinking about, is there another way to go? Um, and the partner that we use is actually one of, the, one of the distillers that we interviewed that year, who was very open source and gave us feedback. And so that journey brought us to, to our partner. That's great. I love when potential problems end up becoming a solution like yes. that. So that's, that's great. Yeah. Had you ever worked together before at all? Yes, we had. We produced some shows together, uh, you know, with Marsh as a producer and, and I as creative. We came up with some ideas for reality and scripted shows. And we did some pilots together and, you know, went around Hollywood and, and pitched those shows and had great experience there. Um, and then we also came up with, you know, just a three or four months into some other consumer ideas and you know abandoned them three or four months in because we just didn't have the passion for them after we jumped in and did our due diligence about the opportunity so this is absolutely the most successful one that we've done together but we've been working together for probably 15 years now good good you're starting a business is difficult anyway but you know you're going into business with your partner in life and in love and i i understand that you both had like the ideal talents to bring together I and mean, that was that was really serendipitous how do you do you have any tips for well people like me i work with my husband too do you have any tips for how you balance who does what and to not 
you know, kind of be at each other's throats all the time, which actually is a good question for so many of us who are still working from home with our partners, even not in the same business, but in the same house. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's lots of, in hindsight, lots of tips and lots of things that we did right. And uh, I think the, I think the biggest one is um, staying in your lane. Um, for, for example, Jan is a master marketeer, branding guru. I mean, she's just an instinctive creative director. And yet there is no ego there. If I, if I see something and I go, ah, doesn't feel right. And she'll go, oh, okay. And let's, and we, we unpack it. We try to, you know, just be as open source as possible. Um, but we really respect each other's vision and voice. And, and I think the, this is funny, but I, I think the biggest um, motivator to not argue is sell your house. <laughs> <laughs> You're both really motivated to make this thing work. There was, there was literally no, um, there was literally no, time that we ever thought, ah, it's too hard. Let's just forget it. <laughs> it. It just had to succeed. I mean, we didn't have a marketing budget, for example. The front of this bottle uh, tells our entire story. It needed to literally pull itself off the shelf. It need, needed to jump into your basket. And that's kind of what's been happening um, with, with minimal effort from us. We were, we were starting to see that Grocery stores uh, or, or little liquor stores, they were saying, wow, this gin is, is really selling. What, what are you guys doing for marketing? And we're like, what do you mean? We don't have money for marketing. <laughs> we're, we, just, we just started. And then, well, whatever is happening, people are coming in and going, oh, that beautiful blue bottle. And they're walking out with it. It's, it's selling like half as much as our big name brands. Um, and for a brand that has zero marketing awareness uh, is a testament to why this blue bottle with the whale tail on it um, attracted your attention and um, and then then they try it and they're, they're coming in to buy another one so fingers crossed that this continues <laughs> to add to to add to the sentiment that Mars said I think it's you know really taking the time and patience to to be respectful the example that that Marsh used was perfect because you know both of us coming from different areas Marsh's culinary and science background and my marketing you know when you when you've worked for in an area for 20 years, then you have your own bias and you kind of just make assumptions and move on to the next. Um, so it's incredibly powerful to have a partner who hasn't spent their life doing that because then they come in with that new point of view and then having you know the respect to step back and say, wow, I never thought about it that way. I'm still learning things. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's how we are innovative. And the same with Marsh, you know, taking the lead with distilling um, and also obviously like sales as well. I was still working my day job and Marsh was, you know, out every day, you know, pounding the pavement when we first started in sales. And, and he would always respect my point of view coming in, you know, not knowing the science background and just coming from an instinct of a storytelling place of trying new things. I think our experience as parents has really added to that as well. Um, you know, when you're running your family, it's your own little business and corporation. Um, and you're, you start to become, you know, really in tune to sensing when your partner needs a break and when they've had too much, you know, and then one of you just steps up and does a bit more and then the other one can take a break. And I think that, you know, having babies and toddlers really, really teaches you to recognize that dynamic in each other. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And it's interesting because you, you touched again on that naivete, you know, that not knowing things and, and how that can be a benefit. You know, you, you said you sold your house, which, you know, is intriguing enough, but you sold your house when you had kids, you know, and are, are wanting to have a nice stable home for them. So tell me a little bit more about that and maybe some of the other struggles that you encountered when you were first getting going. Well, it never ever felt like a risk is simply how I felt about it. Um, we, we had a concept uh, we knew it was an addressable market that was gigantic in the United States. Uh, and if this thing even was remotely successful, uh, it could change our lives and, and more importantly, change the lives uh, or change the coastline of California. Our, our partnership with Oceana was a, was a huge part of that motivation early on, the why. Why are we doing this? And our kids are watching mommy and daddy launch a booze business but it's not just a booze business. This is a, this is a company that 
protects and preserves the world's oceans through our support of Oceana and 1% for the planet. And the kids got it. And, you know, we, we, we were witnessing our, our children, you know, we would watch an awful lot of Shark Tank um, when we were starting out. And uh, Lila at one point, um, you don't realize that they're little sponges, but she jumped up and, and said, oh my gosh, that valuation is crazy. When, when we were watching a, a Shark Tank episode and we both looked at each other and went, what, what, what are you talking about? Well, I mean, they haven't even done sales. Like, how can they possibly value it at that? <laughs> and it just killed us. But we, we, it, we were laughing so hard because they are little sponges. And since then, they've come up with business ideas themselves. Um, and each one of them has a philanthropic backbone. So whatever they're watching us do, they're, they're hopefully learning the right way to, I, who knows if it's the right way, but it feels like the right way to to run a business to with some social responsibility um uh, but i'd I, say um in some ways yeah. what when we when we were making that decision what was scarier was not selling the house and jumping in yeah because, i agree <laughs> yeah when you when you came back to that you know conversation on the cliff edge of if we don't take this risk you know if we continue to work for corporate america and not be the master of our own destiny it puts us in a place where we're not going to be able to make like really big, significant impact on the environment. And we're not using our time well on this planet. And we're not setting a great example for the kids. And, and things would have just moved on as they were, which was fine. But, but that's not the kind of th- example we want to set for the kids. Like make a huge mark and do whatever you can with your time on this planet, you know, to make, to make it a better place in some way. Um, so I think that's, that's what it came down for is there was more fear in our guts not to take this leap. Yeah. And Courtney, I I would add to that, that we, we, obviously it took us two years to launch and, uh, we analyzed the heck out of this and, and oddly enough, I'm neither of us are finance people at all or or really number. I, I have a medical physics degree, so I'm somewhat, you know, familiar with numbers, but definitely not accounting numbers, but I, I learned how to um, put together a little pro forma. And the more we kind of went back to the numbers, the more it just started to make sense because I, the way I kind of justified it and I would try to convince Jan about this was, okay, look, if we make a bottle of gin for, I, I'm going to make up some numbers here for 10 bucks. And our goal is to sell it for 40 bucks at the liquor store. It sounds crazy, but actually it's not. There's there's a wholesaler involved that takes a 30% margin. There's a retailer that takes 30% margin. And then there's Uncle Sam with the federal excise taxes all baked in. You're actually only making around 60% margin, gross margin on on a $10 bottle that sells for 40 bucks, which is bananas, but it's, it's true. And I said, well, worst case scenario, we can sell this bottle for at least $10. So we're not going to lose money. I mean, it's got intrinsic, there's gin in a glass. <laughs> Let's get over ourselves. We won't lose the money. We just might not make any money. So that was the justification early on as to why we should take this huge risk. So it didn't seem, like I said earlier, it didn't seem like a risk at the time. And looking back, probably was quite a big risk, but, <laughs> but I'm glad we did it. Jan, how much convincing did you need when he came to you with those conversations? <laughs> uh, really, none at all, just because we mentioned before, you know, and just coming from a place of, well, you know, if it all goes nowhere, you know, then we just go back to like the, these fun, creative careers we've been blessed with and, you know, and we'll make it again. Um, so it made sense to me. Right. Yeah. So talk about the reason why it's so important to you both to be benefiting the world's oceans. And are you able to see at this point, you know, that you're having a positive effect or is it too soon to tell? Yeah, no, we, we very lucky in so far as we found, we did a lot of research early on into why we picked Oceana. Um, There's an awful lot of ocean themed uh, conservation groups like Heal the Bay, Surfrider Foundation, and a million in between. But Oceana is making legislative change at the international and um, federal level. So they, they have offices in Washington, D.C., for example, and they're really involved with, like I said, legislative change. So one, one of the specific things that we were very proud of is our um, support of Oceana in banning something called drift gillnet fishing. Drift gillnets, um, 
for folks that don't know what they are, they're these two mile walls of death, if you like. Uh, they're, they're two miles long, 200 meters deep, 200 yards deep. And the, the net is, um, it has kind of big holes about a, a foot and a half by a foot and a half holes in this net. So the, the theory is that smaller fish should be able to swim right through them, yet the big fish like swordfish are going to get caught. And they're called gill nets because the, the fish swim through them and then get their gills caught in these nets. And that's how they catch um, swordfish. And yet what was crazy is California was the last state to ban this. Every other state had banned it. And we just were scratching our heads going, are you kidding me? The, the wonderful tree hugging nation of California is, is the only state left that still has this, this practice. So we partnered with Oceana. Um, we helped them put together a, a little video. We actually took one of the scientists down to um, San Ignacio Bay and we recorded this beautiful little video that is on their website right now. And we helped raise $2 million and um, we enacted a ban through our former governor, Jerry Brown. And, um, and that ban is actually taking effect right now. So uh, we are actually seeing real change because of our little support of Oceana. And uh, we're gonna continue, you know, there's, we, we, now that we're got, getting these nets out of the water, it's by the way, this is an important fact. We're, we're not putting the fishermen out of jobs. Those fishermen in other states use something called deep set buoy gear. And that is, instead of a net, they use hooks that go to the bottom of the ocean. And these hooks have a, a very, very high likelihood of only catching swordfish because of the depth that they're at, et cetera. They're using a little bit more technology. But we wanted to be in a position where we weren't just putting these guys out of business. So they have a buyback program. I, I believe it was $100,000. They get to give up their fishing net and they get right at the front of the line to get a new license for this deep set buoy gear. And that $100,000 is supposed to offset the cost of them buying the new gear. So nobody was going to go out of work. And I think that's what Jerry Brown was uh, the former governor was so excited about him. Well, this seems like a win-win situation. And that's that's part of the partnership with Oceana, that they're constantly thinking about those things. And, and going forward, we've got our eyes set on um, vertical entanglement issues. So lobster pots, for example. You understand that these beautiful creatures, these gray whales and, and other whales, uh, the blues and uh, humpbacks, they're all going up and down our coast, coastline. They're incredibly powerful creatures. So if they do get entangled with a, a lobster pot, well, they can easily carry that thing for 18 months, two years. But what happens is they, it, it's, it's a drag. It's a drag weight on that, that tail. So they start to get weaker and weaker and weaker. And it's a very slow and painful death for them because they can't feed as well. They can't breathe as well. And ultimately they succumb to lobster pot entanglement. So there is a, a new solution that's out there and we're, we're trying to find a way to work with Oceana to raise awareness for this and, uh, and, and enact bans for lobster pots. But what, what it is, is essentially no line. So you throw your lobster pot down into the, uh, the area that you usually fish uh, or, or lobster catch, I guess. And um, you come back the next day or a day, two days later or however long you want to leave it and uh, you use your cell phone to geolocate where you were. You press one button and it fires a little buoy from that lobster pot and it floats right to the surface. You go right up to that buoy, grab it and reel it in. So there, there would be no lines in that way, which is very simple technology that existed 20 years ago, but yet it's now really accessible because of these handheld cell phones. So that's really where we're going for our, our future. And, uh, and also the, um, the reforestation of kelp forests off the coast of California. We've got a very invasive species of purple sea urchins coming in and they're, they're decimating our forests. And those forests are so crucial to human existence that 70% of the breathable oxygen on planet Earth comes from phytoplanktons and, uh, uh, and, and these wonderful sea kelp forests. So as much as we think the Amazon rainforest is crucial. Well, that's really only, you know, 30 or so percent of our breathable oxygen on planet Earth. The rest of it comes from our oceans. So it's crucial, crucial that we protect them. Oh, that's it's just fascinating. And, and it blows my mind that that you could do fishing with a cell phone. I mean, that's yeah. that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So your your base spirit, let's talk about that for a minute. It's gluten free. I saw on your website. Is that something that just you do, or is are base spirits always gluten free? Um, well, it's corn, corn base. So 
corn is gluten-free inevitably, but um, the gluten molecule rarely comes through on the line arm when you distill a product. So usually, I mean, I, I would not go so far as to say all distilled products are gluten-free because I think the celiac society would fight me on that one. But I, in my opinion, nearly all distilled spirits that have been distilled to a high enough alcohol content uh, are, are gluten-free. But, but yes, we can legally call ours gluten-free because it comes from corn. Okay. All right. And, and so therefore they're also vegan and vegetarian. Correct. Yes. Cause we, we do not have any, um, any animal products in this whatsoever. And, uh, and yes, it's all a botanical is a vegetable. It's a, it's well, not, not necessarily always a vegetable. I mean, a, you could use fruit, but it is a grown, it's a product that is, that is grown in the ground or in, in our case, in the ocean with the, the sea kelp. Right. Right. So when you dream about where this business could go, what do you envision? Global domination, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just want the world to taste the Pacific in a glass. And, and if our little gin can excite people to try something new and taste the Pacific coast in a glass, then, then that's the goal. But for us, we're, we're just going to keep doing this until, um, until nobody wants to drink it anymore, which hopefully will be never. And I think our goal is to excite people about making an impact in the environment or for animal conservation. It can be, you know, in really small ways like this, like just making, you know, a conscious purchase and thinking about what you're doing or, or small changes at home as well. So when we think about what Marsh jokes about global nomination, that's when we get really excited thinking about, you know, more work that we're going to be able to do with Oceana and really, you know, change and move the tides here with what's happening with ocean conservation. Right. Right. It interested me too, when you explained that it starts out as vodka, because I, I run into people all the time because I do love gin who say, oh, I can't drink gin. I have, you know, a bad experience with it. I just do vodka. I'm sure you hear that too. What do you say when people say that to you? I say, well, usually the reason you've had a bad hangover has been because, or had a bad experience is because you drank too much of it. Uh, ethanol is ethanol. Uh, and that's in beer, it's in wine, it's in vodka, it's in gin and tequila and every other spirit in between. It's the reason we drink alcohol. Um, a, social aspect. B, it has a, an inebriating feeling. It, it loosens pe people up. That's, that's why we drink alcohol. So what, what is it about gin, the original flavored vodka? Uh, I think it was because it tasted so good that people drank a lot of it. And... <laughs> When you drink too much of anything, it can be, it can give you a bad, bad feeling. And most people that I've found that say, oh, I, I, I don't drink gin anymore because I had a bad experience. It was usually when they were very young, uh, you know, e either at university or, or some, sometime in their early twenties where they, they overindulged in, in gin and it can put people off that way. But, but or they had their father's or their grandfather's gin and, you know, it had a much higher concentration of juniper and was less balanced than some of the modern gins too. So they're always really surprised when they, when they try our gin. Yeah. I've had a lot of uh, whiskey drinkers and tequila drinkers more recently that, that come and uh, try this gin and they go, Oh my gosh, I can actually just drink this on the rocks. This is, this is incredible. Um, and you know, it's funny, Courtney, because I, I, I do, I still love doing in-store tastings as much as I can. Uh, and I was at a Whole Foods um, not long ago where I'm, I'm asking uh, folks when they walk in the door, say, oh, we have this wonderful Californian uh, craft gin. Would you like to try some? And they go, oh, gin, no, no, no. And I go, well, I also have this wonderful Californian craft juniper vodka if you'd like to try that. And they stop and go, ooh, that sounds delicious. Yeah, I'll, I'll try juniper vodka. And they come up and have a little taste. And then I go, just want to let you know that juniper vodka is actually called gin. And <laughs> I mean, that, that was, it's funny. We, that was one of the names we toyed with. Um, it was going to be called California, California gray whale juniper vodka, because we knew that people had that stigma to gin. But um, if we, if we remove just one botanical, the juniper berries, we would legally have to call this vodka. So it, it's, it's just funny to me that, that we have a whole distinct category because of it. What, what did, when you tell them that at Whole Foods, do they get mad at you or 
No, fans? their mind is blown. They're like, yeah. oh my goodness, I never knew that. I, I always thought it was a, a spirit derived purely from juniper berries. They didn't know that it was uh, a, a clean distilled spirit that had a flavor profile that was um, added juniper in some way, shape or form. I think it inspires them too, because they're empowered then. They have that moment of discovery and then they can take that gin to you know, the next dinner party or a gathering with friends and say, did you guys know that actually gin is just flavored vodka, the OG flavored vodka? So, you know, so they feel like they're bringing that, that new knowledge to their friends and they can be the cool cocktail culture person at the table. Right. And on your website, you have the, well, they're beautiful to look at um, cocktails, but really interesting sounding recipes. Who came up with those? Oh, it was a collaboration of bartenders, um, tastemakers. Our brand ambassador, Matt Cleet, has been coming up with a lot of those wonderful uh, cocktails. Um, we're very excited. We have a new brand ambassador just brought on board, um, Zach Berger. He's, uh, he's incredible. He's going to be coming up with a lot more cocktails, too. So, uh, but yeah. It's, it's, and, and Marsh and I, I mean, yeah. early, the early ones were Marsh and I's favorite cocktails and things that we were making at home. And, yeah. Like the whale hello there. Yeah. And friend, <laughs> friends were friends of ours were photographers, you know, were, were shooting those images for us, you know, for, for cases of gin. Um, <laughs> that's really how it started was just a collaboration of, of all of our friends and supporters. Yeah. So because your gin does have a very distinct, but but not overpowering, just distinct flavor, I'm going to assume that people are going to buy a lot of your gin after listening to this podcast. So when they do, and they're trying to come up with cocktails on their own, because of all that mix of botanicals, are there certain considerations that people need to take into, into mind when deciding what to combine it with if you're not just doing you know, a gin and tonic? Well, good, good question. Um, for us, it was always about uh, a, a super balanced gin. So for example, we, um, I, I was just in New York uh, last week, meeting with some of the, you know, hottest cocktail mixologists in the world. And, and it's, and it's remarkable what they all get out of the gin. Uh, what, what I mean is, they will all say, yes, incredibly balanced. The viscosity of the almonds gives it such a creamy mouthfeel. The, the kombu sea kelp has that earthy umaminess in there that I'm, I'm just so excited about. And the juniper is loud and proud, but there's, a, there's also a nice citrus component. So if, for example, you're looking for a, um, a classic cocktail, you may want to go down an army navy route, which is essentially just lemon juice, uh, simple syrup, but with orgeat uh, almond uh, simple syrup. And it's got this wonderful little almondy backbone with a lemon backbone. It's just fabulous. But then the gin fizzes are great and the gimlets are great. And, and this gin, because it's so balanced, can make an incredible martini. Men's Health voted it the number one um, martini gin in the world. And we're just thrilled about that. But I think whatever you're looking to create and enact, you can absolutely swap out vodka for gin. Uh, so think about a I don't know, Bloody Mary, for example, that there is a, a version of it with when you just replace the vodka for gin and it's called Red Snapper. Even a Cosmo, <laughs> let's go back to Sex in the City. You can just swap out the gin and it has infinitely more flavor profiles. There, there are multiple different iterations of gin too. There's a, there's a more sweeter version called the Old Tom style. Um, ours is just really in the middle. It's very balanced. Um, it's a good gin. If you've never had gin before, uh, I'd recommend, you know, going down the old school route of, you know, educate yourself on a beef eater. That's a classic London dry or Tanqueray. There's, there's a whole bunch of different wonderful gins. And then uh, Hendrix is a fabulous gin that, that really kind of kicked off this craft culture. Uh, I'd, I'd recommend you try that. And then, then come to, um, come to the U S and try a little gray whale and you, you'll see the huge iteration and difference. And, and, and I think, um, inevitable trajectory of where I think gin is going to go. We're going to be able to taste our way around the whole world. Um, that's what I get excited about with these new distilleries popping up all over the world is I get to taste your, hopefully I get to taste your, your area, you know, throughout the world. Right. Right. Is there a gin version of Tirar? Yeah. <laughs> Te What's well, it called? Terroir. Yeah, yeah. Terroir. Terroir exists in, in the wine world where we, we go, oh my gosh, that, that little patch of the vineyard gets all the sun 
And that's where our reserve grapes come from. And, and we, we bottle it and we charge an inordinate amount of money. For us, uh, we, we kind of had that, that word in the back of our mind, terroir, taste your way along the Pacific. So th this, this com unique combination of botanicals that we use, that's, that's really what we were trying to go for and try to kind of pioneer a little bit here because most of the gins tend to be global. They tend to source botanicals from all over the world, whether it be Italian juniper or, uh, oh, I don't know, Algerian um, angelica root and orris root and all these uh, wonderful herbs and spices. And you got to remember, that's where gin really came from. Back in the 1700s, the, the 1600s, when the Dutch came over to the UK and they brought this spirit called Geneva, and they were using a, a, a spirit that was steeped in juniper berries to mask the poor distillation qualities. And it had a slight woodsy component because it was kept in barrels. That's really where all of this came from. And then the British started to make their own gins and you know, with the East Indian trading company that would go all over the world and bring back dried spices because you couldn't bring back fresh. Everything had to be dried. So that's why a lot of the old school English London dries and Scottish uh, gins taste kind of similar because they're using a lot of dried botanicals and that's all that was available then. So now we can use fresh limes and, and fresh sea kelp that we end up drying, but it is, we, we, if you follow us on Instagram, if any of your listeners are out there, just go to gray whale gin, gray with an A uh, on Insta and you'll be able to see Jan and I hand foraging the sea kelp. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a different, Different feeling when you're using fresh. Well, and, and you're all, there's the term mirror too, for things that are coming from the oceans. You're mixing that with, you know, having the sea kelp in there. So that's extra interesting. So with, with you guys in the foraging on your website, and by the way, people will see this, but your website has the same beautiful vibe as the bottles. So Jan, congratulations. Great job doing that. I know that's you. <laughs> Um, but you sh you show yourselves going around in that cute VW bus. So is is that for real? Do you really do that? Yes, it's parked out outside of our house <laughs> yeah. right now. Yeah, <laughs> really? drive. Yeah. We, awesome. we actually have two of them. We we have one on the east coast now um, with our our partners out there that are on a, on a lovely tour going up all over the east coast. So if you spot it, um, yeah, go 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 say hi and. The other one is on the West Coast, so we're, we're thrilled. We're thrilled to have two buses. And they're hard to come by. You know, these are 50-year-old buses. So, yeah. again, that's kind of part of our um, message. Uh, of course, it feels California, but it's, it's also why, uh, why go out and buy a brand new one when we got an old one? That's perfectly fine still. Yeah, we take it to the right. grocery store down the beach, take the kids to soccer in it. And, you know, what's so amazing about it is it is just an absolute like energy high every time you drive that car it's it's like a symbol of optimism and you're you're not ready for it but you're if you're at a stoplight there people are just taking pictures of you giving you the shaka waving it just makes people really happy and so as the driver and passenger in the car um it's a it's it's a joy to drive it makes us happy driving around um our community <laughs> I bet. That's so awesome. Well, let's, uh, this has been fascinating and, and you guys are so interesting and I just love your gin. It really, it really, I, I literally saw you from afar at a Top Taco food festival where there was a lot of booze. There are a lot of opportunities <laughs> for booze. And I, I really, I saw you from basically from across the room, but from across the field and just made a beeline to you because you know i i was drawn to it just like you you hope everybody's gonna be people are um so let's wrap up by reviewing for everybody where they can purchase your gin and learn more well uh you can always purchase it at any fine liquor store uh hopefully and if if they don't have it just ask them to find it, <laughs> it it's readily available but um if you want a store locator, just go to our website, um, www.graywellgin.com. And uh, yeah, it's, this you is a store locator. Yeah, the top right-hand corner. Um, there's also a little merch thing there, which we, we don't make any money on the merch. We give 100% of proceeds to ocean conservation. You'll be able to see some of our, for example, upcycled bottles that have been turned into candles, um, which are gorgeous, by the way. We'll have to send you one, Courtney. Uh, oh, thank you. Smells beautiful. Soy wax. Um, 
And yeah, on, on all the social media, we're on every channel, it's uh, at Grey Whale Gin. And thank you, Courtney, for seeing us from far away and being inspired and you know, coming <laughs> over and listening to our story. Oh, yeah. It, I, I was just totally drawn in and then really just, I, I could not believe the flavor. It was just so wonderful. Well, we, we always have an article associated with our podcasts on realfoodtraveler.com. And there we'll have some beautiful pictures. So you can, even before you go by, you can see this gorgeous bottle and the cute VW bus and pictures of Marsh and Jan. And we'll also have the link to the website and to your social media too. So we'll make it super easy for people to learn more and um, purchase and be able to have the same kind of experience I did just discovering. I've, I've loved gin for years, but I have never had gin like this before. And it just was was eye-opening. So thank you both so much for joining me today. And thank you for doing what you're doing. And, you know, not just for, for pleasure drinking, but, you know, for the world's oceans, my gosh, you're, you're doing big, wonderful things. And, and I really, I, I think it's exciting that you had that moment in that epiphany on the cliffside, literally. I mean, how poignant is that <laughs> to, to be cliffside and make a decision about making a huge change in your life and for yourselves and your family. So I'm so glad you did for all of our sakes. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. <laughs>